This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today I speak with Heather McDowell, Vice President for Legal, Environmental, and Government Affairs for the U.S. region at Sabanye Stillwater, the owner and operator of the Stillwater and East Boulder Mines. I think it's hard um, for those not, not doing this day to day to understand that we want to be robustly regulated. I don't want less government or less regulation. Heather works at the intersection of many issues critical to Montana's future. Environmental regulation and sustainability, workers' rights, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and many others. And if those topics weren't challenging enough, Heather and her colleagues have been struggling to recover from the massive flooding earlier this summer that shut down mine operations. Heather, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Justin. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. This is amazing. Yeah. So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? <laughs> well, actually, a past te- it's, a, it's a current tense for what they're doing. I grew up on a ranch in Bridger and my parents okay. are still running the ranch. So we have a small cow-calf operation, you know, in, in some pretty rough but very beautiful country there. And just I grew up, you know, working alongside everyone. I think by the time I was five or six, we were out changing irrigation pipe and, um, have, you know, do all of our cattle work riding. And so my mom and I did all the riding and yeah, it was a true family operation. I remember going to law school at at Gonzaga my first day and thinking like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, right? This is easy. This is, (laughs) this is, is, everyone else was complaining about the, you know, the time we would have to, to quote unquote work. And and I was thinking, gosh, this is a great vacation. So yeah, it was, it was just a, a real privilege to grow up that way. I think working side by side with your family. Sure. And talk about, you know, you you came to the University of Montana, studied accounting, and then you just mentioned studying law at Gonzaga. Yeah. Talk about your your choice to um, depart from the ranch in in the work sense, but I'm sure you do plenty of work when you go back and visit your folks and family. Yeah. So when I was growing up, I I think, you know, every, every kid has some sort of aspiration. And by the time I was about 10, I had decided I was going to be a lawyer and everyone says, oh gosh, you know, you must have had some inspiration, some role model. I said, well, my dad is is a cowboy, right? He's as cowboy as they come. And my whole child's childhood, he had said, you know, Heather, you can be anything you want. The world is yours. You just can't be a damn lawyer. And so by the time I was about 10, I, I just said, <laughs> I think I'm going to be a lawyer. I have no idea what a lawyer is or what a lawyer does, but that's what I'll do. And then he had tagged onto it at some point, and you also can't go to school at Missoula. So it was sort of, I think, a really good example of of why you don't give your kids too strict of instructions because sure. the two things I did were really the only things he said I couldn't do is is attend <laughs> school at Missoula and become a lawyer. So happy to have to have defied the odds there. Well, it probably also says something about your uh, your work ethic and mentality growing up on the ranch and a strong family that, um, you know, nobody can tell you what not to do, right? I think that's exactly it, Justin. Yeah, it is. It's sort of, you know, watch me, right? Tell me I can't do something and then I will do it just for the sake of proving that I can. So and I, I, I think I, 
I definitely inherited that personality. So I don't know if he knew what he was doing at the time. I really do think deep down he did not want me to become a lawyer or to go to Missoula. So the personality trait of, of stubbornness and uh, perseverance are definitely genetic. Here we are. Well, speaking of perseverance, we got a lot to get into today. But first, give us the state of play. Um, you know, one of your minds was shut down with the flooding event back in June. How are things going? How, how, how are you all kind of holding up? Yeah, it's been a crazy experience. So on, on June 13th, which was otherwise this like beautiful sunny day, the Stillwater River was raging. So we operate Stillwater Mine in Stillwater County and then the East Boulder Mine out of McLeod over in Sweetgrass County. And then we have a metals processing facility down here in Columbus where I am today. And so at the Stillwater Mine, the Stillwater River usually runs at about 3,000 CFS it was up to 20,000 CFS on June 13th. And our operations actually held up really well. We didn't have any damage on site other than to a bridge that um, our operations span the Stillwater River. A bridge was damaged, but then it washed out the um, county highway going up to the mine and actually also really unfortunately going up to the Woodbine Campground and the Sioux Charlie Trailhead, which are highly trafficked recreational sites. And so that that's been a really sad fact, too, is that those have been closed down. But mm-hmm. uh, we have not been operating at the Stillwater Mine since, you know, the early morning hours of June 13. Did you have people stranded, you know, up at the mine with that with that road washing out? No, we didn't. We had a way to go around. So we didn't actually okay. have stranded people. I think one great thing our people did on the first day is that there were about 70 campers up at the Woodbine Campground. And they had to get out. So there was a full search and rescue effort and our folks sort of chipped in there. Then they were able to bring them to the mine site where from there we could get them transported down the valley and eventually got them all out and home and were able to then have them come back later in the week and recover their vehicles. So that all went really well. All of our people were fine. We did leave, I think, about 60 people on site just to kind of, you know, make sure that we were maintaining our systems and really making the plan for recovery. Yeah. And so what happens to the folks that aren't able to go to their shifts? Are they claiming unemployment or like what's what's the status of those folks? Yeah, well, we've continued to pay folks um, regardless okay. of whether they're working. So everyone who works at the Stillwater Mine is getting their, their base pay. For some, that's not everything because we do have a fair number of employees, especially our, our miners who are actually doing the mining who also work on incentive pay. So, you know, they're not getting what they would get in the the miners case if they were actually coming and and performing their job functions. But, you know, it is everyone is getting base pay. They've retained all their benefits. And we're slowly just bringing people back as we get operations back up to speed. Sure. So that is maybe a, a transition into this concept of responsible mining that I've heard you, you know, in various venues refer to. Let's actually define that. What is responsible mining? What does it look like? What does it mean to you? And and how do you and your colleagues think about it? I think to me and to those of us here doing this work, I think it means conducting your operations in a way that your stakeholders are okay with, that the people who live next to you are okay with. I mean, we don't expect everyone to buy into this, right? Everyone is is entitled to to whatever views they have about extraction. But I think we need to continually be doing things in a way that people can live with, that we can actually be a neighbor, that, you know, I I like using the term neighbor as a verb. You neighbor with people. 
you, you okay. help them do things, you, you know, you make sure that what you're doing isn't, isn't a hardship for them. So I think that's, that's what we try to do in, in carrying out this responsible mining. We're really fortunate that we have the good neighbor agreement that I know many folks have heard about. It's a binding legal contract with Northern Plains Resource Council and two of its subsidiaries. And it's just been this amazing relationship over 22 years now. It was signed in 2000. And it really does allow this type of collaboration where these these folks who are the entities and the individuals who have been really involved and just give huge amounts of their time and experience and intelligence and ideas. And so I think putting all that together, I mean, I think responsible mining is, is really working with your stakeholders, working with your actual neighbors, your, I, I think anyone who's adjacent in operations or anyone that you're affecting. I mean, we use the term stakeholder, which sounds a little bit cold and surgical, but I, I think just making sure that the people who your operations could have, could affect are okay with how you're doing things. Yeah, that makes sense. And maybe let's take a moment to talk about the sorts of materials that your operation mines. Palladium group metals is my understanding, but I don't think many listeners really know what that means. Yeah, it's kind of a mouthful. So we produce platinum and palladium. We are about 78% palladium and 22% platinum. All of our products go to an entity that makes catalytic converters. So Everything is mined at our sites, and then it's concentrated down at concentrating operations up at our site. It's brought down to our metallurgical complex, and then it forms what we call a, a filter cake. It's like a black sand quality that is is really rich in platinum and palladium, and then it goes off to a catalytic converter manufacturer. So that's where our material goes. Maybe it's a, it, it would be illustrative for the listener Many folks who don't know mining, and I count myself as part of this group, we, we think of mining in terms of the legacy of extraction in Montana, you know, mining operations that are closed down and gone bankrupt and have environmental degradation and Superfund and all these sorts of things. And that's a big part of Montana's history. And you talk about like how, how you all do it differently and, and how a you know, when your mines will eventually be closed down, what will that look like? It's such a great question because our mines, a Stillwater mine opened in 1986. And, you know, that was coming right on the heels of really the disaster that, that was Butte. And then the East Boulder mine opened in 2001. Mm-hmm. And I really think that everything was set up to not have another situation like we created historically in Montana. And so maybe I'll start with the regulatory environment. We are operating under the Hard Rock Impact Act, and Mm -hmm. that was enacted in the mid-1980s. And so from a socioeconomic standpoint, and, and maybe I'll just start there and then move to the environmental piece, it really is a highly sophisticated way to operate. What it essentially does is that at Stillwater and East Boulder, we have the only two actual operating plans for the Hard Rock Impact Act for operating mines. And what it does is it requires the mine operator, us, to essentially, there's there's predetermined local affected units of government. And then the funding has to go to assure that the impacts from the mine can be handled by those local government units. And then there are funds that go to assure that they can do their governmental functions. 
And it really is a brilliant way to do this. We're just assuring that the, that the governmental units locally are funded. And then they do what they need to do. They make the decisions. They make infrastructure and school and other choices as they're situated to do. And I'm, I'm just really proud of how that Hard Rock Impact funding and just the governance for it works. I don't think a lot of people know about it because, again, our, our minds are the only two operating under it. And you know, it's a pretty narrow group of, of folks that are impacted. And then I think I'm proud too of our very prevailing wages. You know, our average um, employee in Montana makes well over $110,000 before benefits. And so it creates this really nice structure where then they're well situated to also be, you know, good community members. And so I, I think on the socioeconomic side, I'm just really proud of how sophisticated of a system Montana set up coming out of some of the historical mining events that weren't ideal. We'll be back to our conversation with Heather McDowell after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey, this is Coulter Nuanas from ESPN Missoula, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Heather McDowell about responsible mining. And then I think the same thing on the environmental side. Sometimes I, I, I think it's hard um, for those not, not doing this day to day to understand that we want to be robustly regulated. I don't mm-hmm. want less government or less regulation. I mean, here we need to to make sure that we have enough regulation that that the people that we could impact, that they feel like they have a remedy and that the regulatory scheme is strict enough that there won't be impacts to them. And so we, we want a robust but certain regulatory environment. And I think that's what we have. If you look all across, you know, from the environmental fleet here, water quality, tailings regulation is all, it's very robust in Montana. And we're thankful for that. I don't think it's something where we want to, I I guess I really just disagree with rolling back and rescinding regulation Mm -hmm. because I think we need to provide that sort of surety to people. It's a different world than it was a decade ago or five decades ago or, or whatever. And I think that um, that's, it's a privilege to do this type of work and a lot of responsibility comes with it. And I think the more that the regulations can match what those responsibilities are, the better. So in Montana, we also have just, for example, you know, very strict water quality regulations. And that's a good thing. We also have a really sophisticated mine tailings governance scheme where any new tailings impoundments where we, we ultimately store our waste are subjected to a pretty strict fleet of regulations, including being reviewed by an independent review panel and having really strict closure and reclamation requirements, having concurrent reclamation requirements. So I think that's really both on the socioeconomic and the environmental side, why things are different this time. And, and I think those, those differences are apparent. I mean, of course there are impacts, right? You know, we, work hard every day to try to lessen those impacts. But I do think that you can visibly see the difference. I mean, if, if you drive to our sites, 
it looks like a mining operation, but it looks like a much different mining operation than we may have had historically in Montana. And and I guess something that flows out of this is how do y'all think about climate change? You know, you're, you're operating facilities with long, long time horizons. You're susceptible to environmental changes. I mean, whether or not we attribute the scale of the flooding event back in June to climate change, it happened. And, you know, scientists say more of those sorts of events will happen. Some will directly affect operations. Some will affect the infrastructure you rely on to conduct your operations. How, how do you model for climate change? You know, our, our goal is to create a, a climate resilient business and to, mm-hmm. to ultimately help reverse climate change. Now, we are primarily a, a PGM, platinum, palladium, and a gold business, but we do have some lithium interests, some nickel interests, and we are on an, a, you know, a strategy to become a larger green metals producer. And, you know, at the core of our, if, if you look at our, you know, our, our, our strategy, our corporate strategy, it is to build a climate resilient business to, and, and to advance this green metal strategy to ultimately help reverse climate change. So, it's, it's critical to us. And I mean, I, I think, again, it, it has to be for everyone, I think, because a lot of these things that we do, too, they're just about efficiency, right? I mean, we have to, I think, make sure that we're using electricity electricity and, and fuel and other resources efficiently. And I think regardless, maybe, of your philosophical beliefs and climate change, I do think looking at your carbon indicators when we we look and track we track scope one two and three carbon emissions, mm-hmm. and when you look at the when you sort of operationalize the things that will get you to reductions. I mean, frankly, there are things that responsible entities should be doing anyway, regardless of their yeah. philosophical beliefs on climate change. So, I think everyone should be looking at this idea of of efficiency. I mean, we happen to to believe strongly in attempting to reverse climate change and and to also create climate resilient businesses with the idea that um, we may have to withstand more of these events in the future. But again, even if that's not your your entities or, or your personal mission, I really think it behooves everyone to think about like, those actual things that you do, regardless of the overarching belief, because I think everyone should be doing them. In our remaining time, Heather, let's talk about another passion area for you, and that's diversity, equity, and inclusion. I, I think when, when people think of DEI, the mining industry is not one that comes to mind, but but how is it operationalized in, in your industry, and how do you, you, you and your colleagues think about it? Yeah, I think it's so important that we're doing it here in mining because I think there's so many excuses to not do it, right? And I think we have to try to be leaders and, and to say, we're going to try to tackle this problem in a situation where it's a pretty big problem. I mean, statistically, we are not a diverse entity and it is not a diverse industry. And I think just tackling it head on and admitting that. And right now, I think the, the glory of doing it now is workforce shortages. And essentially in Montana, in our region, is we're at full employment. So we have a really good business case. I mean, again, it's, it's a little bit like climate change. I, I believe passionately in doing inclusivity because I think it makes things better for everyone. I think in these types of industries, and again, growing up on a ranch and going, um, I was in private practice for a while and then with utilities, 
and really kind of have had a career in industries where there are a lot more men than women. And I think for a long time, I, I just thought that this is how it is. Just accepted the fact that it wasn't set up for most women to do. And then I started this job 10 weeks pregnant with twins. And I came into this job and I didn't have any leave. When you haven't worked at a place for a year, there really is no no leave for that situation. So I was slated to go have twins on four weeks of vacation. And again, I, I have a lot of grit and resilience and just thought, well, this is, you know, I, I can do this, right? This is doable. And got a little while into that and had amazing, healthy, happy babies and we did survive it. It was, uh, I have a, a supportive spouse who was very competent at childcare, which was exceptionally helpful. But then a few months into it, I remember hearing someone talk about, oh, well, there's this tax break for this, you know, single mom of three kids and she can do whatever with the $600. And I, I really just had something sort of switch in my brain and thought, that's crazy talk. So, you know, for that $600 tax credit and more, she too can afford to work because at the time, you know, I was paying $50,000 a year in childcare costs. And everyone kept telling me, oh, Heather, this is so great. You're doing so great. You can do it. It can be done. You're a superwoman. This is amazing. Kind of like setting the stage of like, if you can do it, everyone can do it. And it just really, again, like flipped the switch where I thought, this is crazy. I mean, we are creating jobs that are unattainable by really anyone who has family responsibilities or who's not exceptionally privileged. I mean, the only reason I could keep a career and and sort of have twins without a hitch is because I'm rich, right? I have a great job. I make a lot of money and I have a supportive family and a supportive spouse and I'm in the 1% for privilege all the way around. And I think we're creating these jobs that, you know, people can can only do if they're privileged. And I think we have to stop doing that. You know, we have to look at like what we really need from people. And, and, and I focus on women because that's my lived experience, right? I think yep. you can put, you can attach this theory to, to any underrepresented group of people. And we just, we have to stop happy, having these unreasonable expectations, right? Where, where women either don't enter, it's kind of this first rung issue. They get into a job and then okay, well, why don't you step up and do this next role? But they can't do the next role because it requires coming to a 7 a.m. meeting and their kids have to go to school. And there's no one to get their kids to school. And so they don't take the role for that simple fact. You know, and I think that happens. I think it happens a lot in Montana. So we're, we're here at Sunny Stillwater doing a full DEI initiative. I mean, it's slow work. I would not claim to have any great successes, but we're talking a lot about it. We're... Um, really involved in the women in mining organizations, both nationally and internationally. We're really just talking to people. We'll have calls and and just talk about all these things, you know, about having difficult conversations and about random things that we would do to create inclusive spaces and just try to get people talking about how we can cannot put these like false barriers on people's advancement that you miss so many good people I think there are so many people not in the workforce because they couldn't meet these little barriers to entry. Yeah, we sort of we narrow narrow the funnels at the top on uh, sort of artificially and unnecessarily, and it just really just yeah, it cuts off opportunity 
for so many. I'm curious, Heather, within this context, I mean, you have a South African parent. South Africa has its own well-documented history of terrible treatment of marginalized groups, et cetera. Talk about how that interface works, what you're talking about domestically and here in Montana versus within the context of a South African-owned parent company. Yeah, so we're all on the same crusade. It's really fascinating because we have a women in mining initiative in South Africa as well, and we're working together. I mean, it's the same initiative kind of, you know, throughout the company, we're approaching it differently. I think in South Africa, it's so complicated. I mean, the history is so complicated and and tragic. And But I really think people are the same everywhere. I mean, I obviously anyone who travels knows that, that I think sure. no matter where you go, humans are humans and the problem is exactly the same. I think it gets, it's more challenging in both of these places because here, I, I think a lot of times people tout our jobs as, as being great because you can just have one job per family. I mean, which is fantastic. It's really fantastic if that's what that family wants to do. Right. However, if that family consists of two adults who both want to advance their careers, it gets really difficult because the schedules are really difficult and the logistics of having like two of our jobs and having a family and, you know, it gets really challenging. We're, we're in South Africa. I mean, I do think, you know, the unemployment rate is, I think, functionally well over 50%. I, I don't know what the documented rate is, but I think it's fair to say that over half of the people who want to work are not working. And it's like a different scarcity situation. I think it sort of puts women in the same position almost because here, I, I think in, in both places, you know, the women here may not have the opportunity to work because their spouse has such a good job that, you know, it's sort of lost in the shuffle that they're missing that opportunity. Where I think in South Africa, maybe it's often the men who can, who can get the better job and there's not the availability of jobs. But I, I think it presents the same problem. It means women have less opportunity. And good to know that, you know, you're talking about it across cultures and with different types of people and different types of organizations, et cetera. So, Heather, as we close here, tell us a little bit about what you do for fun. I get the sense that you are into horses. What are you kind of what are you doing for fun this summer? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It is a horse obsession. So, yeah, yeah it's uh, <laughs> You know, I, I have a little fleet of horses at home. I'm, I'm into jumping, which is something I've gotten into relatively recently. I grew up rodeoing. I was actually on the, the rodeo team at Missoula, which was great That's fun right. a long time ago. But the summer is filled with horses, and I have a, a seven-year-old and twin four-year-olds, and it's just utter chaos. I mean, it is dirt and water and kids that may or may not have clothes on just all circulating around. And then in the midst of it, the horses are, you know, just kind of hanging out and wondering when it's their turn. So yeah, it's just my summer is utter chaos, honestly, Justin. Well, in some ways, that sounds like a lot of fun. Heather, it's been great to catch up. If folks want to learn more about you or Sabanya Stillwater, where would you point them online? Yeah, I think you you can head to our website. You can... Mm -hmm. um, you know, definitely reach out to me. We're, we're happy to talk more about it. And I, I think, you know, definitely, Justin, we'll have to get you up to see one of our sites sometime. So maybe we'll, we'll have you come out and, and um, see it for yourself. I, I would like that. Um, okay. Heather, thanks so much and uh, happy trails. Awesome. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. Social media by AJ Williams. And Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.